are you clear on the outcomes that you're trying to create? And are you willing to stick with your plan when times get tough? I hope you are. Sometimes I am and <laughs> sometimes I'm not. So today we're going to have a little pep talk. And we're going to talk about the importance of knowing what you're trying to create and being willing to stick to what you can uniquely offer, even when you don't feel like it. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Thursday, January 15, 2015. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about self-confidence, try to view it in the right light, try to help you avoid poor little old me disease, and try to give you and me a little bit of confidence to continue pursuing our own journey. Today's show is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to go deeply into uh, any specific financial planning topic, but we are going to talk about something that I do believe affects our personal finances, and so it is highly relevant. Uh, I was planning to release an episode today, which would be was an interview that I've recorded with uh, Nick Nick from Side Hustle Nation about building up uh, side businesses, but I'm preempting that program <laughs> because there's been an interesting confluence of factors that have affected me today, and I just thought this would be an interesting interesting discussion to have. Well, I don't know exactly how long uh, today's show will be. Uh, I've got some clear ideas to uh, get across, and it's partly a pep talk for you and partly a pep talk for me, but I hope you find it valuable. Uh, today, I want to talk primarily about knowing what you're trying to accomplish and staying focused on what you can do, even when you don't feel like it because it seems like other people uh, are doing things better than you. And there are a few a few factors that have, have come together for me today. I'm going to start off with uh, interesting uh, discussion on uh, financial podcasts. And there were th four specific catalysts for these thoughts that I've been having today. One of them was I noticed yesterday a new pod a new financial podcast being launched by a young lady named Farnoosh Tarabi, who she is a uh, She's a financial journalist and has done, I guess, a lot of work in, in TV, and now she's launching a financial podcast. And what's interesting to me is uh, many things in my character are straightened out, but God's still working on a couple aspects of it, more than a couple, actually. And one of those things is dealing with feelings of jealousy. I easily get jealous of other people who are doing things that, that I care about better than I, I am. And it's kind of an interesting uh, aspect, I think, for me to, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. You know, I certainly don't care about other people being better motocross riders than me. I certainly don't care about other people being better bowlers than me. Uh, I don't care about other people being better downhill snow skiers than me. Uh, but I do care about people who are excellent at some of the things that I want to be good at. And what's interesting is it's so easy to become critical. I often find myself wanting to become uh, critical. And I noticed uh, 
yesterday, actually, I briefly noticed it, and then today I went and looked at, at the site that uh, there's a new a new financial podcast that's being launched. And uh, I'll, I'll commend it to you, maybe a, a show that would be of interest to you. Uh, it's a podcast called So Money, and it's with, uh, again, the host is a, a lady named Farnoosh Tarabi. And I've never met Farnoosh. I, I first saw her and heard her speak for the first time at the Financial Bloggers Conference, excuse me, FinCon, uh, formerly the Financial Bloggers Conference a few months ago. And she gave a very excellent uh, speech. She's a, a fabulously talented uh, lady. She's published three different books, I think, on uh, financial topics, and she's just extremely talented. And what's funny, though, is immediately when she started uh, uh, Posting the podcast, I immediately thought to myself, "Oh, here we go! I can, I can, I can design this formula." Here's because I know all of the best practices in podcasting, and so sure enough, I went to check, and and she's doing everything that she should be doing uh, really well. You know, she's uh, she's got her show. She's doing a daily show on. Uh, finance and on money. And it's about a little over, it's 30 minutes long, which is essentially the ideal podcast length from what little market research data is available indicates that people have a strong preference for shows that are in the 30 to 45 minute time uh, range. These shows fit e- easily into an average person's uh, commute. Uh, they are not overwhelming to look at. You know, a, a two hour and 45 minute podcast episode is a little bit overwhelming to look at. For many people, and they think, ah, oh, how am I going to commit to that? But 30, 45 minutes, that seems to be the the ideal range. It's, that's why, if you're interested, you see so many shows that focus very heavily on being right in that that time horizon. There's probably something to it. After all, you know, most sitcoms or TV shows tend to be either 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And so, yes, there are some outliers that are much longer, but 30 and 60 minutes, our brains tend to work that way, whether it's a psychological principle of how our calendars are set up or, or, or whatever. So she's she's doing the show in, in that format, and she's doing some, uh, she's doing interviews primarily. So her show is a uh, daily show, seven days a week, and she's doing five days a week with interviews and then uh, questions and answers on the weekend. And uh, uh, probably the first thing that just sparked my jealousy was her guests. And uh, her first uh, her first guest was Tony Robbins, and another guest was uh, James Altucher. And both of those are people that I have admired and read a lot of their work over the years and admire them. And I was just impressed that she was able to get them as guests. And so immediately I thought, oh, man, I can't get them as guests. <laughs> Poor little old me. <laughs> you know, we always, I often, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, uh, the reason I'm sharing these things is because I'll bet Many of you have probably had the same feelings that I have, and I've learned the older I get, the more I realize that I'm just like everyone else, and we're all about the same, but sometimes we don't talk about this stuff. And so I immediately felt a twinge of, of uh, jealousy about her guests and her ability to get them on the show, and uh, then I just start looking at the format, and I think, okay, we're going to do the launch, and so I, I said, there's a, there's a launch formula now for podcasts. I'll, I'll tell it to you in case you're you're interested, but Basically, the there's a the launch formula for for creating podcast episodes. If you're going to create your own, uh, is very simple. You want to go ahead and you want to have a daily show. That's the <laughs> that's the ideal at this point. Is everyone is big on the daily show, and that's primarily due to the success. Uh, it's due to a couple of psychological. Uh, connections is and one of the psychological principles is the idea of having a closer connection with an audience uh, another another thing though is it's based upon the massive financial returns of uh, 
of primarily the Entrepreneur on Fire podcast. And probably the show that has had the biggest splash, other than some of the recent ones with uh, the two more well-known famous podcasts of Serial and Startup, which are kind of their own unique uh, things. But the show that's had the biggest splash and kind of the mainstream business podcast uh, horizon is uh, Entrepreneur on Fire. And the host of that show is a man named John Lee Dumas. And he does this uh, daily entrepreneur interview show. And uh, what's unique about it is he publishes all of his uh, income reports from his show. And that brings a special measure of uh, a special measure of notoriety to him because his income reports are extremely impressive. He's, he has uh, revenues and profit at this point of a couple hundred thousand dollars a month with his show. Uh, now, $200,000 of his revenue is based upon telling other people how to podcast and $60,000 of his monthly revenue is based upon his pod, his own show. Uh, but <laughs> hey, good for him. He sees a need for it. Uh, so I admire what he's doing. But this is kind of the formula now that's been developed. So there's this launch formula. And the launch formula is you want to go ahead and stack up uh, some content. You want to stack up some interviews and you want to release and to a big audience and you want to get lots of subscriptions, lots of reviews. This helps you get into iTunes new and noteworthy. Uh, this helps helps you to get a little bit of notoriety. You want to stack up as many people as possible to leave you reviews and, and subscribe to your show. And it's effective. And this is what I believe anybody, <laughs> this is the best practice. So unless you have a better idea, this is what anybody launching a podcast probably should be doing. And so my point is that as I started to look at um, Farnoosh's site, I immediately thought to myself, wow, she's doing a great job. She's got a book that she's written specially for her email opt-in. She's got her site set up. She's got these big name guests. She's got she like she's doing an amazing job. And I'm sure her show is going to be uh, massively successful. And so immediately that uh, or for me, uh, that immediately kind of sparks off feelings of jealousy. And immediately I want to you know, I have this inner desire to discredit her and to somehow come out against her, like ah, if you can interpret that <laughs> to be an emotion. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Maybe many of you have had that. If it's something that's important to you, as I was thinking about it, though, uh, I was just you know just relaxing a little bit and just kind of uh, primarily just letting the emotions go and um, just calming my emotions and and kind of letting those things go and and. I guess to get a little spiritual, get letting God just kind of deal with me because I don't have any reason. And I just, you know, and I just sat back and thought to myself, I don't, I don't have any reason to be jealous of her. And I thought, excuse me, I sat back and thought to myself, you know, look at this straightforward. And this is why I'm going to share uh, to the two other anecdotes that are contributing to this show. And I talked to my wife, and I, my wife is so helpful to me. She, uh, she is an amazing woman, and one of the things just that I treasure about her is that she's excellent at listening to me. And uh, that's so important to me. Uh, I'm a verbal learner, so I, I learn by speaking. And so just for her ability just to listen to me and give me an opportunity to talk myself through uh, issues and problems is, is so helpful to me. She's, she's, she's wonderful uh, in that regard. And I talked my way through it, and I just said, you know, listen, I, in, a, in, the, in the end, it's a net gain. And 
I really do believe from the bottom of my heart that every additional uh, f- podcaster, every additional financial podcaster, every additional blogger, every additional uh, YouTuber, every additional whatever the new thing is, person that comes online is going to be an incredibly uh, – it's going to be so beneficial. And the reason is that we can't all speak the same language. And so I would be surprised if uh, I would be surprised if there was a lot of uh, you know cross proliferation of of our of her audience and my audience and any of the other people that that do a great job simply because we need different people who are different coaches at different points of our life and especially in a technology that's so relatively nascent as podcasting anything and anybody that can be introduced to it helps everybody else out so uh the reality is i'm thankful that uh that uh farnoosh is is doing a show and i hope it's great and i hope it helps i hope it impacts millions of people's lives and uh, I hope that just so many – I hope that she experiences massive success with it and that it helps millions and millions of people. Uh, I really do. Uh, but it's not so – even though I believe that, though, my point is that even though I believe that and that comes from the bottom of my heart, it's hard sometimes when you're in the middle, when p- other people are doing things, to not want to just jump on and, and be like everybody else. So I was reflecting back and I was just trying to coach myself a little bit through some of the emotional impact and just trying to think through uh, and help myself kind of deal with the emotions of, of all this stuff. And I was considering why that is. And I realized that one of the things that's so difficult for me, even when I recognize that it's difficult, it's still difficult. And I'm sure it's just difficult for other people, is to be confident in yourself, not in a... a, a not in an ugly way, not in you know hubris and 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 just like having a nasty ego, but being confident in your ability to deliver something that's different than other people. And I was reflecting back at how challenging that has been through my lifetime, and I blame many uh, factors for this, but. One of those things that I blame primarily is school, and a, the schooling system. As we've all gone through it, if you if you went through a mainstream schooling system, the schooling system teaches conformity. Now, whether or not you believe, as I do, that it was designed with that being a primary outcome or not, or whether you just think it's happenstance, the the net effect is that it primarily teaches conformity, and so we're always measured uh, as as students if we're competing with one another in a classroom we're being measured on the same uh, uh, scale the scale of grades the scale of the gpa and no one is ever giving us the opportunity to measure ourselves on our own scale there are a few students who seem to escape and seem to just simply ignore the uh, you know the school environment and just do their own thing and see through the foolishness of of it all. I was not one of those. I was one of those people who was very concerned with getting my A's and making sure that my GPA was good and and all of that. Now I look back and I just think what a waste. Now I, I certainly learned plenty through it. I don't I don't want mean to be too extreme, but my point is that nobody ever asked me about my interests and about the things that I wanted to pursue. 
rather I was being held to a strict standard of conformity. And man, has that affected my life ever since. And I dare say it might have affected your life ever since. Another bit of these four data points that really impacted me was last week I released the show on my personal development plan. And a listener emailed me, I think it was email, not a comment on the blog, emailed me privately and just was um, giving their thoughts on that show. And this listener encouraged me and said, don't compare yourself to experts. And I thought, what a great encouragement. And he went on uh, and said, don't compare yourself to experts because you never know the truth of that story. You never know really until you really know somebody. You don't know what their life is like. You really don't. And it was such a valuable reminder. I tend to lose sight of that sometimes. Uh, but you never know what someone's life is like until you actually know them as a person intimately. So oftentimes we look up to experts and, and we try to compare ourselves to experts and we try to do what other people uh, are able to do. And, uh, and, we, and we fall down. You know, It's like if I try to compare my productivity uh, to... Uh, you know, to Tony Robbins it, it was the was the example in the email correspondence. Uh, if I try to say, "Well, I'm going to just be like Tony Robbins," the reality is, I don't know if I want to be like Tony Robbins. I don't. Now he's got a great public persona. I would love to talk with him, and he just seems like such an energetic guy. But the reality is, I don't know what his actual life is like. You know, the man is di- he's divorced uh, from his from his wife. I don't want to go through that. Now he's claims that he's happy as anything, but in my mind, that's a massive failure. I don't know what his relationship with his children are like. So I don't know that I want you know, to recreate what he's recreated. Though he be known globally as a, as a great uh, inspirational figure, I don't actually know what his actual life is like. You know, I think of the, so many of the tragic Hollywood people and, and just the tragic endings that come to so many lives you think of you know who who's the the guy uh, Robin Williams you think of how until I didn't know that he wasn't just <laughs> his life wasn't great until all of a sudden uh, he's dead and then I find out that his life wasn't great and I just thought how 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 often do I need that reminder? I, I need that reminder frequently, which is why I'm reminding myself of it today and then sharing it with you uh, to hopefully remind you. I, I so valued the email from the listener because I thought it's exactly right. I need to decide what are the metrics upon which I measure my success? What are the metrics that are important to me? If GPA is my important metric, then I should pursue it with gusto. But if my interest in a specific aspect of science or mechanical design, which is, has nothing to do with my ability to create a perfect 4.0 or you know, 4.47 GPA with my high school GPA, then it's not the right I – need, I need to decide the metric that's right for me. We don't always know the whole story. And it's, it's, you have to be careful to compare yourself with experts. <laughs> It's good to learn from other people. It's good to learn from experts, but you have to be careful of it. I was thinking about uh, when I was thinking about uh, Farnoosh's new podcast. I was just thinking, Joshua, why is this? Why does this affect you like this? The reality is that she has uh, this. Uh, 
She has a, you know, she's got years of experience that you don't have. She's got years of contacts that you don't have. She's got years of, of uh, you know, she just has a very different path than you have. But why are you focused on what someone else has and rather than on what you have? Don't a lot of us do that a lot of times? I know I, I do it, which is why I'm simply sharing it with you and, and, and in hopes of reminding you. It's don't, don't think about what others have. Think about what you have. Is another aspect of our society, which is interesting. I've thought about, you know, how do I promote my show and my stuff? And, uh, you know, the reality is I'm not aware of anybody, any other financial broadcaster or writer practically. There may be some writers I could come up with. I'm not aware of any other financial broadcaster who has the background that I have or who has the, the course that I have and the course of action the the course of study that i have and yet i'm always very slow to want to self promote you know again we're we're taught that uh, he or she who self promotes uh, that this person uh, you know the, the 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 what is the japanese proverb the ha- the nail that stands up highest is the first hammered down isn't that so true is that all through, even on that GPA scale, I remember so specifically, I, I generally did well in school. And part of it was I was a good student. Part of it, it came easily to me. It was a combination of those two things. And I, I was never number one. I graduated fifth in my class, something like that, because I didn't care as much as the leaders did. But I just remember so <laughs> routinely in, in high school, especially, where I immediately always, when the teacher would pass the papers back, I'd immediately cover up the paper so that no one could see that I'd gotten 106. Or no one could see that I'd gotten an A. And I was reflecting on that as well, and I just thinking like, what is this crazy world where we're measured on one dimension, GPA, uh, and then even that dimension, we're not proud of doing well. <laughs> Why is it so difficult for me to promote the things that are uniquely me, the things that, that I can uniquely do? And it's a, it's kind of an, I haven't solved that one myself yet, uh, but it was just an interesting observation that not only are we measured on these arbitrary. Uh, predictors, but rather we're measured on, uh, you know, even those predictors we, we don't want to show. So when people talk about success, for example, they say, well, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so is, is such a successful person. Often what they mean is financial success. But the reality is that as you're more and more financially successful, you need to, in some ways, <laughs> downplay your success <laughs> and be more, and you can't show it off. And so what a mixed up, what a mixed up world. <laughs> it kind of makes me, it makes me laugh. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, it's, why is it so easy to, instead of acknowledging the things that you do well at and acknowledging the success that you've enjoyed, immediately you see someone else's success and we become jealous of it. And we want to uh, immediately tear them down instead of building them up. I don't have the answers, uh, but I know that uh, it's at least just been uh, useful for me to think it through. I wanted to find success on my own terms. That's one of the reasons why uh, you sometimes hear me say, even though I'm doing a show on money, I think money is a very poor uh, measuring stick of success. Do 
think of your eulogy as a useful journaling exercise if you've never done it is to write a eulogy for yourself pretend you you're your best friend and and pretend that you are uh tra- tasked with delivering the eulogy so if i you know i'm, be- I'm my best mate and i I'm tasked with delivering Joshua Sheets' eulogy. I've actually done this. It's a fascinating journaling exercise. And think about what you would say. And the question is this. If I were giving the eulogy for Joshua Sheets, would I want to give the eulogy that is completely focused on how rich he was? When I did this journaling exercise, not a single time did the amount of money show up in it. Have you ever heard a eulogy that has eulogized how rich somebody was? I dare say that if you have, you've only heard it once. I've never heard one. Now, you may have heard a eulogy, and I have, where the effect of the money was implemented. So, for example, you know, Joe Smith was so phenomenal in that uh, he affected the lives of thousands of people with his financial contributions toward this specific cause. Or, you know, Jane Smith raised more money for this cause and she brought thousands of people out of poverty. So that's the effect of the money. The money is a poor measuring stick. What if we had a different metric of success, something like an adventurous life or a life that had meaning? or a life that persisted to future generations. Frankly, to be um, a bit vulnerable and transparent with you, that's what I care about. I don't care a bit about the money. I'm going to spend it all during my lifetime, every last dime of it. I care about the multi-generational impact in my family. I care about the difference in the world around And yet in a society that praises money and financial success, where I should be uh, proclaiming to you my great great, uh, skill at piling up money, and I should be giving you my net worth statement so that you have an interest in hearing what I say, I simply reject that. It's a poor uh, litmus test of success. Now, I want to be clear. Money is a is a means to an end. So there's certainly, uh, if I if I am just completely broke and uh, ha- I have no biz- I have no business in that situation talking about money, uh, especially teaching about money. There is a need for it. You know, I'm working toward financial independence myself and focusing on that. And so there is careful planning. Uh, don't hear me too. Don't don't hear me uh, in the wrong way. But my point is that the money is a means to an end. It's a means to an end. I may wish to die broke, but I certainly don't wish to live broke. <laughs> After all, the, the, the timing of this thing is kind of important. <laughs> Financially independent at 40, yes. <laughs> Not broke at 40, broke at 100. <laughs> so my point is we need to understand what the goals are that are behind, what the actual, uh, what's actually important to us. Sometimes when you're working on something, you might not know how close you are to success. Here's the third of the data points that have created this show. Last night, I was reading I'm reading a book called, it's a biography of a man named Richard Feynman. Uh, the book is entitled, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And Richard Feynman is a, was a 
somewhat well-known professor of physics uh, in California. And he's, he's quite the Renaissance man. And I was reading, however, in this book, uh, an anecdote. And early in his career, immediately after he graduated from college, he took a job as a research chemist for the Metaplast Corporation. And this was a an entry-level job in some ways, but the company was involved in metal plating plastics. So at this time, uh, it was a new technology of how do we put a metal coating on plastic pieces. And they had some rudimentary methods for doing so, and he was involved in helping to come up with new ways to do it. So this was practical applied chemistry. And however, he was the only chemist. And with his entire chemistry lab, it was him, and then he had an assistant who was in charge of, uh, he was chief bottle washer, as they say. And they did this for a few years, and they were able to create some good products, and they advertised their products uh, in, peri- in magazines and newspapers and in order to bring in orders. So years later, he's working at another, uh, another job, and as part, of that, uh, as part of this, there was another scientist who was there, and they were talking one day, and they were talking about what they had done previously, and this other scientist said, well, I was working in a laboratory uh, on a process for creating a metal plating process to metal plate plastics. And I was one of the guys in the laboratory. And so Feynman asks him, how did it go? Uh, I'll read from page 57 of Surely You're Joking. It says, how did it go? It was going along pretty well, but we had our problems. Oh, just as we were beginning to, v- to develop our process, there was a company in New York. What company in New York? It was called the Metaplast Corporation. They were developed further than we were. How could you tell? They were advertising all the time in modern plastics with full-page advertisements showing all the things they could plate, and we realized that they were farther along than we were. Did you have any stuff from them? No, but you could tell from the advertisements that they were way ahead of what we could do. Our process was pretty good, but it was no use trying to compete with an American process like that. How many chemists did you have working in the lab? We had six chemists working. How many chemists do you think the Metaplast Corporation had? Oh, they must have had a real chemistry department. Would you describe for me what you think the chief research chemist at the Metaplast Corporation might look like and how his laboratory might work? I would guess they must have had 25 or 50 chemists, and the chief research chemist has his own office, special with glass, you know, like they have in the movies, guys coming in all the time with research projects that they're doing, getting his advice and rushing off to do more research, people coming in and out all the time with 25 or 50 chemists. How on earth could we compete with them? You'll be interested and amused to know that you are now talking to the chief research chemist of the Metaplast Corporation, whose staff consisted of one bottle washer. <laughs> I just thought to myself, isn't that the truth? Don't sometimes we, we see something that someone else is doing and we think, wow, I could never compete with them. Poor little old me. You know, after all, here we are. We only have six chemists and they must have oh, 25 or 50 chemists and look how well they're doing. So we'll just, we'll just shut this whole thing down. Poor little old me. Haven't you done that? I certainly do it. I have to fight against that. I have to fight against the poor little old me disease. You know what? 
you and I both are people. We're human beings. We have great talents in some areas and we have great weaknesses in others. That's the same as everyone else. We have the same fears, the same, uh, the same fears as everyone else. We have the same desires. We all want about the same thing. No matter how successful someone looks or no matter how uh, – <laughs> I'm certain, again, I've never met you know, Farnoosh and I feel bad kind of using her show. It was just, it was just a catalyst. Just, the show just came together in my mind this afternoon and I, I hope it's useful to you. But I'm certain that she has the same fear and trepidation that I have and that I had especially when I was you know, recording my first show. I remember that feeling of putting that out there in the world and you're burying your soul a, little, soul a little bit to the world. And I'm certain that she is just as petrified of that as I was. But man, I admire her for going for it. And isn't that the key thing that we should be looking for? Shouldn't we be admiring other people? Yes, it took me a little bit. It took me about five minutes to, okay, it was more like 10. It took me 10 or 15 minutes. I just stretched it for five to 15. It took me a little while to adjust my attitude and to deal with that initial, uh, that initial feeling of, oh, here's how everyone's going to go and listen to Farnoosh's show and not mine. Uh, but the reality is, is that I admire her. I really do. And I hope that you have the same feeling for your competitors, your collaborators, whatever they are in your industry. Admire them. Look to help them. Look to support them. Because do you want anybody, if you're a content, this is new for me being a content creator, but, and maybe, you know, I'll, let me, if I'm a financial advisor and I have a client that's not a perfect fit for me. Am I going to be able to give that client all of the service that they deserve? I can't. I want to send them to someone that can help them. If I can't help them the most effectively, then I have a duty to send them to someone who can. But there is a small tribe of people out there, for any financial advisor, who will love me. And I can help them more effectively than anyone else. I, I, I cannot work effectively with an audience that someone like Farnoosh could have. I can't help them. But I could help people who are interested in my stuff. And the same for you. So whether you're a salesperson or an accountant or a father or a mother or a teacher or whatever it is, focus on helping the people that you can help. Frankly, this is one of the major problems in uh, the financial planning business. One of the things that gets people <laughs> – why people have such a poor uh, – uh, not reputation. What's the uh, poor opinion, impression of people in the financial planning business is oftentimes we as advisors have gone after clients who are not a good fit for us because we were desperate. Desperate to make the sale, desperate to make the mortgage payment. And so instead of building a stable of clients that love us, we build a stable of clients that tolerate us. That's not a good recipe for, for uh, 
success. So make sure that you're working where your skills and your abilities can help other people and where they're actually well-suited. Don't worry about what your competitor is doing. Stick to your knitting. (laughs) And with that, I bring myself to the fourth anecdote that is all in yesterday and today. As I noticed an article this morning on uh, Gary North, uh, Gary North website, GaryNorth.com. Gary North is an economist, and he's <laughs> I I enjoy his writing, uh, so I read his site regularly. And he is I think seventy three years old at this point in time. He's an economist for many years, and he published uh, a book this morning or, that he, he published on his website, and it's free if you're interested in downloading it. I'll make a, a link to it on in the show notes for today, but it's a book on uh, a Christian economic system. The title of the book is The Covenantal Structure of Christian Economics, my new book on an old subject. This is from January 15 today on his website. And the book is available free as a PDF, and it's about a 500-page book that he's just finished. And Gary North is fascinating to me because he is, well, A, he's a bit of a curmudgeon. He just, I admire him for his he just doesn't seem to care what other people think. And he holds these uh, opinions that are in the extreme minority, and I hold many of those. I hold many opinions that are in the extreme minority. But he just holds them and goes about his business and doesn't worry too much about what other people think. That's very difficult for me. I'm a people pleaser. I I like to be liked. I like – so that's tough for me. So I enjoy that. But what's fascinating to me about this book is this book is is the uh, output of – a major project, in total, a 40-year project. He actually started working on this book in 1973. Now you say, how does he work on the book since 1973? Well, in 1973, he started the project. Uh, He had published a book that was essentially an, an introduction to the topic, and it was called An Introduction to Christian Economics. And uh, as he says himself, he says that it was a mel- well-meaning attempt, but it certainly wasn't effective, that there was was not enough strength behind it and some major flaws and problems with the book. So in April of 1973, at the suggestion of his wife, he went through and began writing a verse-by-verse commentary of the Bible focused on economics, what would be the biblical worldview of economics based upon the Bible. And as part of that project, he's published that commentary. He's published 31 volumes of that commentary. So he's written 31 books as part of his exegesis of the uh, scriptural backup for his book. Now, this book that he so so that's the background. He had to do that research. Those were his research papers, <laughs> almost nine thousand pages of of writing uh, to prepare. Excuse me, eight thousand five hundred and fifty pages uh, uh, in that thirty-one volume series, and then that doesn't count for separate appendix volumes that he wrote as well. Uh, so, uh, and he completed that in August of two thousand and twelve, and so then he has finished now the next part of that, which was this book that he just released today, The Covenantal Structure of Christian Economics. And then following this book, he has to go through and essentially write the backup for this, the the deeper proof book. That one will be about a thousand page 
a thousand page book, but with some deeper dive into some of the issues that are raised by the book that he's just prepared, that he's just released. And then he's got a project to go through and and create a series of YouTube videos. So he's got several years left on his project. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this project. Uh, Not only is it a staggering uh, amount of work, which by the way, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt my 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 thought to to give you something else interesting. Uh, I find Gary North to be an, a fascinating person because of his, the sheer volume of output. Perhaps you read, as I do, various bloggers, and some bloggers uh, write and they write a couple one article a week, a couple articles a week, and sometimes they uh, maybe they write once a day. And we're very impressed by people who write a uh, an essay every single day. Well, it's interesting to me. Gary North publishes four essays every single day on his website, on his primary website. Plus, he publishes anywhere from three to six additional web pages on an additional website of his that he runs called the Tea Party Economist. And uh, in the past, and he writes books uh, in, in addition to that. He's written over 50 books uh, throughout his lifetime. And just the sheer volume of the output that he creates is fascinating. But this project, this 31 book uh, you know, of background study and then this new book that he's just done, this one, the way that he actually has organized his time is he's just simply focused on it, worked on it 10 hours per week, 50 weeks per year. And that he probably, so he began writing in 1973, then in 1977, he focused on doing 10 hours per week, 50 weeks per year, every single year. And since 1977, he's gone forward and done that. And he predicted when he first did it, after he got an idea of his pace, he predicted that, it, that he would finish it. Uh, well, he wanted to finish it by his 70th birthday, which would have been February 2012. And he completed his backup study on July 2012. It was a 40-year project. And I just thought, wow, that... <laughs> what an amazing – I've admired his his uh, dedication to his craft. Now, here's what uh, – where I was going with what I find interesting. The entire time that North was working on his book, and even now, he knows that the audience for his work is absolutely tiny. The actual number of people who will be interested in his book is a tiny – tiny number of people. Not only is the average layperson unlikely to read a 485-page text on the economic position of the Bible, uh, what does the Bible say about economics? Not only that, but you have so, – so the average person, very little interest in economics, very little interest in religion, very little interest in the Bible, very little interest in reading heavy, heavy work. Uh, but – who would be interested? So you would say, well, the economists would be interested. But the problem is that as he writes even in his uh, in today's um, essay, that economists are not interested in Christian theology. It's very rare that it would be unusual if you would go up to the Chicago, uh, you know, the Chicago School of Economics or the London School of Economics, and you would find a team of of economists that are just waiting for a book on Christian theology. And then on the flip side, it, you'd be a rare pastor or Christian theologian who's interested in economic theory. So the two parties that you would say would be interested in Christian economics, <laughs> you have very little interest there. And then even if you did uh, were interested, his other third sentence of today's post is that if you had a Christian economist, Christian 
economists are interested only in catalactics in relation to, to some kind of general moral principle, not uh, associated with his overall uh, his overall worldview that he's done. And uh, ignore the word catalactics; it's a it's a niche word. Uh, so. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So you have somebody who's dedicated 50 years of their life to something that uh, all the books are free, available online. There's not a dollar of revenue expected from it, uh, at least not a dollar of profit, and the market for it is tiny. And yet, don't you admire somebody who's willing to stay focused on something that they think is going to have meaning, regardless of popular uh, proof, so to speak, of their of the meaning and of the impact? I do. And that was my fourth and final point, is I realized for myself uh, in need of encouragement is that uh, as I was just encouraging myself in this, I was thinking, am I focusing on what's important to me based upon my own standards, based upon what I'm uniquely qualified to bring to the table? And what I can uniquely do, and generally ignoring other people and their own and their focus. Now, I don't want to, you know, it, there's a obviously there's a balance there. You don't want to ignore things that are important, ignore things that are valuable. So, if I need to learn from something that someone else is doing, I need to be aware at least of certain things. But the point is to define life on my terms and focus on what's important to me. And you can apply this at the macro scale of investing 50 years of your life in a massive lifetime project like Gary North has done. Or you can apply it at the micro scale of choosing to avoid buying the latest, greatest, fanciest smartphone because it's the cool thing to have. And just simply recognizing that uh, smartphone is taking you away from much of what actually matters in life and you don't need to snap a picture of everything but rather to enjoy it uh, and or you know if you enjoy snapping pictures that's fine I, I'm not telling you what to do uh, simply that my wish is that all of us would be able to tune out the external inputs that don't matter to us and focus on the things that do that's the theme that that I was hoping to uh, convey today and my wish for you and my wish for, is my wish for myself that we, each of us would know clearly what we're trying to accomplish and why so that we would be able to stay focused on it and not on what other people are doing. If we have that, I guess, approach, if we have that, if we're blessed to know what we're trying to accomplish and why, and to have it clearly in our mind, and if we can undo some of the social conditioning that says, well, you need to live your life just like everyone else does, then our ability to achieve things will be far faster. And in thinking through, as I prepared just my my brief thoughts for today's show, and thinking through this, isn't this one of the themes that you've heard if you've listened to past episodes of this show? That you find so many people pursuing financial independence in their own way. You find so many people uh, building 
different paths and, and toward their dreams. But at the end of the day, every single one of them had to step off of the treadmill of what society said their dream should be and pursue their own dream. And that's a unique person. I hope that that's you. I hope that you can build that self-confidence to ignore society, even ignore your competitors. Just simply view your competitors as collaborators. Uh, it takes me a few minutes to adjust my, uh, <laughs> my own personal uh, outlook on that when it gets to things that I care deeply about. But I really do think that's the case and uh, that our competitors are oftentimes are going to be our collaborators and, and they're going to force us to become better. I hope this is useful to you. That's it for today's show. That's the primary thrust of what I wished to share with you. Uh, I hope it's useful. Uh, I hope you can take some of that and uh, apply it to your own life and just be encouraged to focus on measuring your own success by your own standards and not by some sort of external standard that uh, each person uh, has. Thank you to those of you who are leaving reviews for the show on iTunes. I would uh, crave many more of those. That's very helpful. Make sure if this is your first show, make sure you subscribe to the show. Uh, got an app. It's being built and it was delayed over the holidays. So uh, subscribe in iTunes if you have some sort of Apple-related device or iTunes on a computer. Uh, or you can use Stitcher at the moment uh, if you have another device. Otherwise, I'm releasing – I'll be have an app built that will be uh, in the native app store for Windows, uh, Amazon Fire, Android, and iTunes as well. And so that will help uh, you to be able to access the show. Most of the third, many of the third-party apps are not very good. Uh, so uh, that'll be coming soon. And if you've benefited from today's content, I would be thrilled to have you as a supporting member of the Irregulars. Uh, that's how uh, I'm earning income off of the show, which allows me to keep bringing it to you five days a week. Hope has been useful. Uh, tomorrow we'll probably have a Q&A show. I've cleared out the voicemail feedback line, but I do have some email questions. It's been so helpful to me to be able to do that this week and just do those Q&As. I hope that, that you found them to be useful. And we'll be back to kind of our more planned out schedule next week with some in-depth financial planning shows, some Q&A, some interviews as well. Uh, I hope that, uh, hope that you'll stick around. I'll talk with you tomorrow. For listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not, and is not intended, to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, 
your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.